to this month's science fiction double feature. We're travelling across time and between worlds this week, talking shades of magic with author Victoria Schwab and 18th century London with Professor of Digital History Tim Hitchcock. Victoria Schwab is a very, very busy person. So busy, in fact, that I was super surprised she had time to talk to me at all. She had just finished her book tour for A Conjuring of Light, the third and final installment in the Shades of Magic series. For those of you who may not have come across it, the series follows an ensemble of characters, including Kel, an Antari, or very powerful magician, and Lila, a street thief with dreams of becoming a pirate. However, Kel can travel to parallel Londons, from his native and magic-rich Red London to the violent and magic-starved White London to our rather mundane and magicless Grey London. The book starts off in a rush, with Lila dashing off to White London to hopefully rescue a captured Kel in the hands of a possessed Antari named Holland. (gasps) It's not your average fantasy series. So, if you haven't been captured by it already, I highly recommend it. But back to the interview. I first asked Victoria where the whole idea for the Shades of Magic series came from. Honestly, I'm kind of what I like to call a chipmunk writer, which is that like I come up with tiny seeds of ideas, and then I wait until I've got enough seeds that they form a story. And so London wasn't actually the first aspect that came up with. The first aspect was magic and moving through different portals. But I, I knew I wanted to write a love letter to Harry Potter. I grew up with Harry Potter, like in the exact age, you know, I was 11, 12 when I picked up the first book and my mom's English. And so I went to London for the very first time when I was eight or nine. And I just remember as an American, like it was my very first connection with antiquity and with history. And I remember turning a corner in London and feeling like a hundred years fell away. You know, like you could turn a corner and you kind of can't tell when you are, let alone where you are. (laughs) And coming from the States, which is quite young, I just remember being completely taken with that. But I shelved it in the back of my mind and I, you know, grew up. And then as I was concocting this idea of a magician who could move between alternate worlds, it, it just made sense to ground the story in this sort of this jumping off point of London, you know, and I, I picked when I picked it roughly 1819, I picked that time period because I wanted to play with the beginnings of modern technology without getting too distracted by it. When you get too much farther forward, technology and magic kind of war with each other. But 1819, it's a time period where technology hasn't come so far that you feel like you have to start negotiating the boundaries between magic and technology. It's a period of occultism and kind of fascination, and there's still so much exploration happening on the sea that it just felt like the right confluence of aspects in which to set a story. Cool. I was going to ask why London, but that perfectly answers that. But the most important question is then, does the stone throw actually exist in London? <laughs> it doesn't. The building, the, the corner does. So one of the very first things I did was I went to London because... The fascinating thing that I wanted to play with was this idea that I wanted to, instead of creating multiple worlds from scratch, create them all on the same skeleton, right? So 
the multiple Londons are so different, but they're geographically identical. And so because of that, I was able to go to our London, Grey London in the books, and take a walk and understand that I would be walking the same amount of steps in each of the Londons, even though the places would change. And so one of the very first things I did was, luckily, Kel starts out in Grey London, in our London. And so I had him take a walk. It's one of the first things that happens in the book. So he leaves St. James and heads for the Stone's Throw. And so I took the very same walk and I started wandering the city, figuring out where it was that he would go. And so that area exists and that corner exists. And it's one of those places where you turn a corner and feel like you've lost a bit of time. So it was a little bit of an imagining then to put the stone's throw there. So the, the place on which the stone's throw is built exists. The stone's throw itself, unfortunately, does not. So how much of the world did you imagine before starting to write it? Like, what were the things that changed the most as you kind of wrote your way through the series? So I have this theory that there are two kinds of fantasy authors. There are fantasy authors that write a door and the reader can go through the door into the house and explore everything and see everything. And then there are fantasy authors who write a window. And basically you can see through the window and you get a limited perspective of the world. It's up to you to kind of extrapolate and infer. And I'm definitely of the latter sect. I believe in giving the reader as little as possible from which they can make as the, as most as much as possible. So I I create my world in as broad a strokes as I can because I want to have it feel real, but I don't want to write myself into corners, you know, and if I set up my world and my rules so strictly at the very beginning of the series, then I might have an idea for something that could be pivotal in book two, but if I've written myself into a corner where it doesn't allow for it, then that's a bit of a loss. And so I create the world as broadly and as intuitively as possible. So I have to have a pretty good sketch of what I'm working with before I ever start writing. Because for me, I think a setting should be a character. The world should be a character. But from there, I try to give myself at least a little bit of freedom to, to flesh out as I need it. Do you still like to have any kind of rules of how your worlds work? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think that in fantasy, you have to have rules, right? So when I say that I try to make my world as intuitive as possible, I build an entire rule system. It's just I try to make the rules as natural and as simple and as conceivable as possible. So yeah, I, the, the thing that I do come up with are kind of the strict rules on which the world itself is built. I won't say, oh, you can have a magic clock, but you can't have a magic you know, handbag. I won't like <laughs> specify the exact degrees to which things are allowed. But what I will do is I'll say there are two kinds of magic in this world. There's natural elemental magic and there's magic we do with spells. And I'm going to focus more on the elemental magic, knowing then that I can then introduce something which relies on spell work. And I've not said, oh, in this world, there's only elemental magic. I've given that door opening for it, but I don't necessarily have to explore it as much as another writer might say, oh, there's two kinds of magic in this world, elemental and spells, and I'm only going to focus on spells. I'm assuming this is the last in the series for Shades of Magic. Is it difficult to leave a series behind? Do you ever miss writing certain characters or feel like you haven't got everything you wanted to say? Oh, it's so difficult. I actually, um, this is my first time ever concluding a series, and it was one of the hardest things for me to do was walk away. I um, I had a really hard time letting go. I just wasn't ready to say goodbye. 
to everyone. You know, I'd spent four years with my characters and I loved them and they were the most me characters that I had written. And writing provides a very specific kind of madness in that they don't leave. You know, I don't have them on paper right now, but they're still in my head and I still go through my day and think, how would Delilah Bard handle this? <laughs> what would Kel say here? You know, and, and it's kind of added to or it's made possible because there are new readers every day. And so as new readers discover the series and start living it for the first time, then they relive it with me. You know, I, I am continually interacting with readers who are just picking up book one. And in that way, it stays quite present for me. But yeah, it, it's hard to let go. It's hard to close the door. Luckily, this is a world in which new doors always seem to be opening, but, but it's difficult even to step away from it. I'm going to miss a bunch of characters, but almost more so the interactions between some of them. So I almost like it more when they absolutely loathe each other, <laughs> like Alucard and Kel. <laughs> Those are my favorite ones to write. <laughs> Do you have to limit yourself how much time you're going to let them kind of bat heads? Oh, yeah. So much of editing with my editor is like culling how much time Kel like witty banters with everybody in the book because he's a unique character in that he doesn't get on with anybody. Like he's continually fighting with different characters, but really, you know, other writers, they love writing kissing scenes or, you know, fight scenes. For me, my very favorite thing to write is an ensemble cast scene in which nobody is getting along because <laughs> I love writing that banter and that antagonism between characters. And it's like, what I like is that it's an antagonism on a very simple level. Like, sure, the world is ending and they're going to work together, but that doesn't mean they have to like each other, right? It's very petty. And I love that. I love it because it's not getting in the way of them actually getting the plot done. It's just they want to remind us as the readers, right, that they just don't care for each other at all. <laughs> I really enjoyed kind of the, the imperfection of the situation, as it were. And as well, like all the amazing kick-ass women that you wrote into it, uh, which made it feel more real, even though it was about magic and fantasy in other worlds. Do you have to kind of intentionally ground a series like that, even though you have, you know, wizard tournaments and things like that? Yeah, I mean, you have to make it as realistic as possible, right? The way that you get people to believe in magic is to make them believe in everything else you're laying down. And if you don't do the realism right, then you're never going to get them to buy the magic. You know, you've got to keep them grounded as much as possible because with fantasy or with any reading, you're asking a reader to take a step, a leap of faith away from the known and into the unknown. And the stranger that step, the more people aren't going to do it. Right. And so the goal is to make it as realistic and as believable as possible so that they'll take as many steps as you need them to take with you. So I think it's very, very important to keep it grounded. That's also, I mean, it's just what appeals will always be more drawn to a world that you could possibly inhabit than one that you can't. You know, there's a difference between readers of, say, um, like Tolkien, which you're never going to get to go to Middle Earth. And some readers of Harry Potter were, and if you could just find platform nine and three quarters, <laughs> you could do it, you know? <laughs> so I think that there's, it's not just about grounding, it's about accessibility. It's about allowing your readers to believe that this is on some level real. Well, and on the other hand, like I mentioned, lots of amazing women, not just Leela, but Kala and the Queen and everybody. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Which... A lot of the fantasy books that I've read in the past have kind of like put me completely off, right? Because there's only the one woman and she is the love interest and she does nothing except get captured. Of course. Uh, so was, was it important to break that kind of fantasy mold, as it were? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was one of my primary goals was to to do two things. One, to write a book in which uh, that wasn't highly gendered and that women could be as powerful or as imperfect as their male counterparts. And the other side was to deal with sexuality in a different way, you know, to say rather than it being the most important thing who you're sleeping with and what their gender is or sexuality, it's that it's do you have magic? You know, everything else takes a step back compared to magic in this world. So, yeah, I just wanted to put everyone on even footing. I wanted Lila to have the same potential and the same ability to to mess up that men are given in fantasy novels, you know? I wanted each and every character to be at the center of their own narrative rather than to feel like part and parcel of somebody else's. Yeah, a lot of the books you get kind of like you are clearly the token friend or you yeah. are clearly the token warrior and everyone had their own relationships and kind of storyline, which was... It, it It is really nice for like all the characters to have a point to be in the book because I feel like some of them are just written in usually. Yeah, I try very, very hard not to write anyone into their into the book that couldn't have their own book. You know, I wanted to make sure that even though they're not the center of this particular narrative, I think it's one of the things that makes them feel like real people and not like not like characters if they can have their own narrative line, even if it's not a story they get to complete. Uh, I was really intrigued at the end of uh, A Conjuring of Light with, I forget her name, but she's um, the person they have to go to trade with. Oh, yeah, Maris. She sounds like she would have a delightful book all her own. Right? Exactly. Oh, no, she's definitely the center of her. I mean, you've got a badass black pirate queen who basically deals in people's lives like she takes time off of people's lives as payment and she kind of just floats in the middle of the ocean guarding the most powerful magic like i would love to write her story at some point she's definitely one of my favorite characters my favorite characters tend to be the ones you don't see enough of i also felt that way against the ultimate baddie who i'm going to pronounce wrong osiron oh osiron osiron i'm like putting all the vowels in the wrong places with all the characters. Um, who was a very intriguing bad guy, as he was like really, really powerful, but also, I'm going to say, a bit Trump-like in his need for kind of adulation and worship. I guess, do you want to have your antagonist have as many flaws as your protagonists? Yeah, I mean, definitely, like, I consider him more like just a villain, and Holland more an antagonist, you know? Um, but I think, I, w- I mean, I want them to be complicated. It's hard, because every now and then it's fun to have, like, the Dane twins who are just, like, straight up awful, um, <laughs> who are still the product of their own environment. So even though they're awful, they, I mean, they are the product of White London and what it is. But yeah, the thing that was fun about Oceron is writing a character. Most of the time, my, my bad people are humans. Right. And writing a character and having a little bit more freedom because he's he's not human. He's a piece of magic that's grown an ego. And that provides so much fun because he doesn't he will never see the world in human terms. It provides an extreme challenge, obviously, because you want to make them conceivable without making them relatable. And he does need to be an otherworldly entity. But it's fun to play with characters who will never see the world the way that you will. It was interesting that he, like, when you come to fantasy novels as well, magic is always a tool. It's always kind of maybe neutral and used in bad or good ways. But he was the incarnation of magic. It's like magic actually going bad. 
Well, so I have an ongoing theme in my books, which is just this idea that uh, it starts with Vicious, one of my other novels, this idea that if you were to give bad people power, they wouldn't become superheroes, you know, like we would just be people with power, like people are inherently flawed. And when you hand them a source of power, they're not going to use it properly. They're going to use it. None of us are going to be purely selfless in it. And so it's that idea of what happens when you hand people of varying ilks from decent to horrible the ability to do anything like this is a thing that we're seeing in my country right now is like, what do you hand someone power if they don't have a moral imperative to do good? You can't rely only on someone's moral compass when you hand them that kind of strength. And that's the issue with Osteron is in Osteron's mind, he's not doing anything wrong because he doesn't see people as equals. He sees people as pawns. And so for him, you know, it, it's their ants. They're not, they're, they're, a means to an end and he's playing his own game he's learning how to be a god in his mind so i mean it's just a it's a matter of truly speaking a different language so you've just come to the end of your tour uh what do you what do you do at the end of a tour other than chill <laughs> oh there is no chill in my life i'm working on my next book um i so i write for three different age groups i write for children and then i write for teens and i write for adults um, obviously I've got a lot of crossover readership between the three, but I'm pretty much always under deadline. So I got, I got back from four, paused long enough to do my laundry, uh, went to the grocery store and I'm now racing through copy edits for another book that are due on Monday. And then I've got another book due next month. So I stay busy. I'm not quite sure what chill is. I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. What people say when they mean a weekend but I love my job. I wouldn't have it any other way. I do get to sleep a little bit more, which is nice. And so while you're not chilling, I notice that you're, you, you, you spend a lot of time on Twitter, which I do as well. I know. It's so bad. <laughs> it's really interesting to see you tweet about like the process and that it's difficult and you question yourself. Is that something you kind of missed when you wanted to start writing or is it just you just like Twitter? <laughs> No, it's not. It's not me just being an overshare. Like I started quite young and I, the thing I noticed when I got started, I mean, my first book sold when I was 21, 22 and, um, and there was no transparency and there still isn't a lot of transparency. And the thing about creative industries is that they're grueling and they make islands of you and you feel like when things go wrong, they're only going wrong for you because we've got this strange industry compulsions when we talk about good things. And I feel like it's a total disservice to aspiring authors and to authors who are in their earlier years and still feeling all of that self-doubt and thinking, oh my God, has everyone moved on without me? Am I the only one that's feeling doubt still? And uh, and so no, like it's actually quite important to me for all that I joke that I'm on Twitter too much. It's, Im- it's important for me to show the highs and the lows just because I think it's honest. And I think that, you know, this is a dream job and I love my job, but it's a job. And when we don't treat it like a job, when we treat it like a golden ticket or we treat publishing like a door that only has to open for you once and then just stays open, it's just a disservice to everybody, I think. So for me, it's just a matter of giving a bit more transparency to the place where art meets business. It's it's the thing that probably most people don't want to talk about as well it's like how do you get an agent how do you then like yeah. get your second book and all that sort of stuff but it's the it's the nuts and bolts you know and if no one's ever willing to talk about it then there's no way that you learn what you how you end up learning then is when things go terribly wrong and so as i can give anyone even a modicum of comfort knowing that they're not alone in whatever it is that they're feeling or whatever it is that they're going through so that they don't quit or give up 
then, then that's worth being on Twitter. I enjoy what seeing your Scrivener. I think you're using Scrivener. Yeah, Scrivener. I use that for my PhD as well. Uh, and all the red, so much editing. I think, you know, yeah. most people probably think of writing too little. Uh, do you find you, you have to write more and then take out? Yeah, my first drafts tend to be quite thin. So my first drafts are, uh, I always use the book as a body metaphor. My first drafts are the skeletons and like a little bit of the meat. And then over the course of revision, I build in uh, what people think of as my prose style is actually the last thing to come. And the reason for that is it used to be the first thing to come and I would end up with a body that had no bones in it whatsoever. And then I would have to delete it all because if you have a cosmetic problem, then you can fix it. If you've got a structural problem, then you have to start from scratch. And so now in the interest of not having to rewrite books entirely every time, my first drafts are quite thin because I'm just trying to hit the plot beats and the pacing. Cool. Yeah. So uh, you said you didn't chill, but <laughs> I, I, I generally try to ask this. Uh, are there, what do you like to read? Uh, some people say fiction, some people say nonfiction and fiction when they're done writing. What do you like to read when you're not furiously writing? Everything. No, honestly, I've got, I, I read across the board everything from nonfiction and memoirs to children's to, you know, a thousand page fantasy novels to to humor. I, I read as broadly as possible. And I challenge myself every few books to pick up something I don't necessarily think I'll gravitate toward. Just because I think that it can be very narrowing when we only read what we know that we'll like. And it's just not a way to find. You discover so many things. There's a great nonfiction set of essays called Lab Girl by Hope Yaren. Uh, that I would have never found if I had only been picking up what I thought I would like. And it turned out to be like one of the most impactful books I've read in my adult life. You just never know. And finally, I know there's not a sequel to uh, A Conjuring of Light, but what will be your next book in case we have anyone who wants to devour that as well? Um, so I've, my, I actually, this is my year of two conclusions. So I also have a series called The Monsters of Verity. The first book was This Savage Song. And then the second book, uh, our dark duet, which is the, the second half, it's a duology, comes out this summer. So this is my year of closures. So I'd already covered the history of magic in the first episode of Science Fiction Double Feature. So what could we talk about in this episode? Since I love history and I love London, the obvious answer was the history of London. Tim Hitchcock is Professor of Digital History at the University of Sussex. He's published books on the histories of gender, sexuality and poverty in 18th century London. He's also co-created websites giving access to primary sources such as the oldbaileyonline.org and londonlives.org. So what was London like in the 18th century and was it anything like the global capital that it is today? Actually, if anything more so, there are two aspects of that. I mean, one is that it really is the first global city in the 18th century, the um, origins of, uh, well, it's like the center of the metropole, um, at the core of the first empire, mainly North America and the Atlantic focus, but also um, increasingly from mid-century onwards, um, India and the Far East. Um, by and at the end, by the end of the century, that that of course, following the American Revolution, changes, and you get the beginnings of the second um, second empire. So throughout, it is absolutely the core of a global a globalized world, much as it is today. And beyond that, 
it has another thing that it shares very much with London at the moment, which is that um, it was the largest um, largest city in Britain. It was at the time, at the end of the 18th century, the largest city in the world, and arguably the first million-person city in the world. That on a on the back of a population of the UK of seven or eight million, so literally twelve to fourteen percent of the population of, of Britain were living in London at any one time during the 18th century. So, did it have the same kind of relationship with other, I guess not as big cities, obviously, but like other major regional centres? There's a really rather wonderful um, body of, of work on urban history, which um, posits that all cities should fall into a kind of hierarchy of trade, and the nature of the population size um, measures how integrated they are as a network of cities. And by those measures, London is absolutely at the top of a not just the regional hierarchy in the U.K., but a much wider European hierarchy that encompasses uh, most of Western Europe. And the thing about this is that you got to figure that the next largest city, mid-century, Bristol is, I think, uh, 23,000, 24,000. Norwich is you know, just under 30. And London is six, 600,000 to 700,000. It is an order of magnitude different. We know the city of London, and you know we have all of the boroughs of London, but how big was London in the 18th century compared to Greater London today? Yeah, the great, greater London is now um, what, just, um, just over 8 million, compared to 1 million in, um, um, at the end of the 18th century. So that gives you a sense of that. And um, largely that growth is, is about transportation as much as population size, because Greater London is, of course, 10 times the size of the London of, of, of the 18th century, which encompassed you know, just the city, so the square mile, um, Westminster and um, parts of urban urban Middlesex and Southwark, so you know went no further. I mean, there were there were there, were, there was green space between the city and Islington, for example, and Islington was considered a, a, a quiet rural backwater. <laughs> I'm north of Islington, so that's great. Yeah. <laughs> There's a huge immigrant population today. Was it similar back in the 18th century? How many people kind of emigrated in, uh, and how many people kind of emigrated in from? The rest of the world, as it were. In terms of in terms of British emigration, uh, the calculation is that one in six people born at any time in the 18th century had to emigrate to London in order to maintain its population growth. In terms of that broader global emigration, London was absolutely first first and foremost a recipient of large waves of essentially refugee populations from France following the um, revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685, and then um, German Protestant refugees in the 1720s and 30s, and Moravians in um, the 1730s and 40s. So there's, there's this huge wave of essentially you know, Protestant refugee um, groups coming in the um, early part of the century. And in the second part of the century, what you get are waves essentially of global refugees. You get um, the large black population um, grows primarily following the Seven Years' War that ends in 1764, and then grows dramatically as part of the uh, American Revolution. So, you know, there was a, there, there was a group of, well, the estimates go up to 10,000, but the likelihood is more in the region of two to 3,000 um, black American refugees, um, loyalists and refugees from American slavery, um, living in London um, by 1781-82. Um, there are also Lascars from from um, the Far East, as as well as pretty much examples of groups of people from pretty much anywhere in the world, at one point or another. 
we're, we're kind of used to having neighborhoods like there's mm-hmm. Brick Lane, which has kind of changed over the centuries. But did these immigrant groups like center in any particular area or were yeah. they did they disperse more than they would have? Ironically, um, if you mentioned Brick Lane, Brick Lane has been the first port of call for every wave of refugees since the Huguenots in the 1680s. <laughs> Um, so, you know, there is that kind of constant wave and reinvention. Um, there, are other group, there, there, there are other areas, so um, St. Giles in the Fields is noted as being a center of, of Irish migration in particular. Um, the, there's a second French community um, around Lincoln's in Fields sort of way. And, but the other thing you'd want to say about that, might want to say about that, or I would want to say about that, is that you've you got to understand that the whole organization of the society is entirely different. So um, the city is, of course, made up of you know, 90 to 97 parishes, depending on how you count them. You know, some had populations of just seven, five, five, six, seven hundred people. And then you had the parishes outside of that, you know, going up to St. Martin in the Fields, which was the largest parish. But in total, there are some 130 parishes that make up urban London. And each of them is you know, self, um, self-managing self and self-controlling. And if you asked any 18th century person you know, where, they, where they lived, they wouldn't say London. They would have said St. Boltoff Oldgate. They would have said St. Dionys Backchurch. And the implication of that is really important both in terms of those migrant communities and how those communities make their own identity or are forced to make their identity. Because obviously uh, parishes in an English context are Anglican. So, you know, the extent to which, you know, the Protestant refugees are part of the Anglican Communion becomes really difficult. So people like Quakers, for example, who um, are one of the great religious dissenting groups of the period, um, set up their own poor relief system and management system. Likewise, the Huguenots, the French churches, um, and and so on. And, of course, the Irish, because they're, for the most part, Catholic are frequently excluded from the organization of parishes, although they, they pay rates, taxes, and um, get poor relief. So how much would the national political system interact with that? Like, what was daily life in Westminster impacting these parishes like, or was it very little interaction? Arguably, there's very little. If, if, if you like, the vast majority of the things that we think the state does should do, you know, from policing to uh, repairing roads to um, hospital care to um, be- um, benefits and housing, were all devolved onto the parishes. So Parliament really did very little by those measures. It certainly wasn't that, if you like, administrative bureaucracy that we associate with the modern state. On the other hand, of course, Parliament was there and was in session, and it drew in large numbers of elite, elite men and, and their families to Westminster and became a talking shop for a whole range of politics that uh, was probably driven more by economics and foreign affairs than it was by, like, the domestic management of the city. There's, of course, a a traditional tension between the city of London and Westminster, but that's a slightly different different story. So for the the political elite, what were the, the major political stories? One of the driving forces of 18th century politics is, is actually getting back to religion and anti-Catholicism and the notion that European history was a battle for, between the Reformed Protestant Church and the Catholic Church and Catholic states. So a huge amount of, of effort and concern is around the Church and the organization of the Church. So to, to, at the beginning of the century, following the Glorious Revolution, 
Britain is supposedly going to lead the um, a reformed Protestant Europe, and this is why they bring in William William of Orange, who is you know, thought to be actually the God-appointed, anointed um, leader of that Protestant reform movement. And that underpins all the um, waves of refugees as well. Um, by the 1820s, 1720s rather, you're getting Walpole and the Robinocracy, so the evolution of an ever more centralized parliament-led government. Um, you have, of course, the 15 and the 45 when, you know, when the pretender is invading, attempting to take over, bringing back, if you like, that whole issue of, um, of that Protestant conflict. By the second half of the century, things change again in as much as the state begins to take on more responsibility for domestic stuff. The, the role of the king has itself evolved and become less central to the process, and that's largely as a result of Walpole taking on um, parliament and creating the, the, the function of prime minister and, and all that goes with that. And of course, by the Seven Years' War and the American Revolution and then the French Revolution, the politics of Britain at every level are overwhelmingly dominated by um, wars of, of aggression, global ownership, and, 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 and revolutionary um, conflict. So aside from the elites, what did the normal kind of average person in London do, or what types of jobs and roles did people have in London? One of the things that is very seldom noted is that as well as being the largest um, city in, in, in Western Europe, in Europe and the center of, of governance, it is also the largest manufacturing city and center, much more so than any of the kind of great centers of the Industrial Revolution. Um, London is where both trade happens and manufacturing happens. So you know, furniture making, watch making, metalwork, coaches, um, there is a huge a portion of the population engaged in all kinds of manufacturing. On top of that, London has, uh, the city of London was traditionally a warehousing site. So just now falling out of, of cultural memory, but in you know, the classic city street up until the 1970s and 80s when it began to be rebuilt as a, whatever it is now, um, was, you know, three to four story narrow houses with on the top floor for warehousing and taking things up to an attic for um, redistribution through a marketing network. So you know, there, there is a kind of warehousing process that, that is absolutely core of how particularly the city worked. Beyond that, finance from the 1690s and the uh, financial revolution of that decade become, again, central to how London works and how it also engages both with the global empire and with Europe. So, you know, the Bank of England is set up in the 1690s. The idea of the um, joint stock company arises, allowing, if you like, the beginnings of modern corporations. And um, the great trading houses all, all get in on the act. So everybody is, well, rather, the, what they're doing is both pursuing manufacturing, pursuing the warehousing that goes right back to medieval London, and on top of that, creating a new financial um, expertise that unleashes um, opportunities for certainly investment. Of course, the vast majority of people worked as housemaids and um, crossing sweepers and did crap jobs. So what was life like then in London? Uh, like, how did people live? How did they uh, travel? Like, the daily commute for a normal person, what would that be like? Well, let me start talking a little bit about housing in the first instance, because you know, we tend to see 18th century London through the eyes of an elite. So we see it in terms of West End houses and you know, great stucco um, Georgian, Georgian uh, monstrosities with pillars in front. 
and that there's a, a real truth to that. But um, the important thing about those kinds of areas, which still exist, is that you know, they were backed by communities servicing them. Whole streets you know, down down the side roads were filled with um, essentially the poor. So it was very much more of a mixed economy of of living than um, you would expect today, where you know greater you know the tube and 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 the rail system allow people to commute much longer distances. So the one thing one would say is that you know, even when you can divide up that um, larger population into individual communities, those communities themselves are much, much more mixed. And um, beyond that, um, you know, there really are, um, most people are living in rooms. This is very much if you like the origin of the bed sitting room. Um, and what you would normally do is rent a room in a house. Um, if you were lucky, you would have two, um, a bedroom and a sitting room, maybe with a, with a fire. Um, you would probably eat out most of the time or eat on the streets. This is the first you know, great epoch of fast food. Uh, you could also get um, all your food delivered to the door. So you know, the, the classic thing is that you would have your food delivered by the local pub, and they would you, know, you would then put the um, the tankard on your doorstep and all the all the empty plates, and they would then have a pot boy come and collect them. The other side of this is that um, yeah, it's a it's a much more public way of life. It, there's very much less domesticity than than you would think, um, and very much less you know, private space. One of the main characters in the book is a young woman. So, what would what would life be like for women in 18th century London? It depends. It very much depends on your class. So, one underlying aspect of this, and this is true for all 18th century cities, is that the majority population are female. Um, you know, someplace like Bath, um, some 64 percent of the population are women. So, there, there's already, if you like, a gendered component at the core of, of the evolution of these cities. Um, and the occupation that most of them ended up in was maid service. So there's a huge underlying population of young women who are drawn in at you know, 16, 17, 18 from the countryside into domestic service, um, working in larger households. And that, if you like, is, is along with needlework and things like mantua making, which is like a, like a corset, are... Um, like the core occupations for women. When you get above that that level, the middling sort are, are women in the middling sort are um, uh, perhaps as free as any group of people within the society. So there are opportunities for women to to run and uh, run businesses, for example. There are opportunities for them to move around. There isn't an expectation of real um, that you can't walk down the street, sort of thing. There are all kinds of cultural areas. So you know, walking down the street on your own at night is one thing, because you wouldn't you wouldn't do that as a middle aged soil woman, although you would do that as a working class woman. On the other hand, um, you know, going out and visiting your friends and going going to, to the markets and all that kind of stuff is, is pretty much the norm. There's also the great you know, moment of the rise of consumer culture and women are at the heart of much of that. Elite women are, you know, that's a different matter again. You simply argue wouldn't go out on the streets at all. You would you know, get your um, get your carriage or get your um, sedan chair and go go in that. All of these are kind of intention and gradually changing. So 
to take a take a small example, you know, 1730s, there's a a moment of, of absolute gender crisis over masquerades, and the idea was that there, nobody would know who anybody was because they were all in in costume and they would all be having sex with one another in inappropriate ways. Um, so uh, across class lines is um, the the primary implication. By the 1740s and 50s, you get the rise of what are called the associational associational charities, things like the Foundling Hospital which becomes sites for a new kind of respectable sociability in public. And women very much take part of that. By the 1760s and 70s, we're beginning a, a stronger, if like, um, blue-stocking movement with women um, you know, taking a much more active, elite women in particular, taking a much more active role in, if like, public culture through print. This character in the book, she is also a thief. So she doesn't get caught in the book, but if she had been caught, what's the criminal justice system like? What would she have faced? Well, by the 1780s, they, you have the beginnings of what's considered the, um, the, the the foundations of the Metropolitan Police and Bow Street and the Bow Street Runners. But most policing in London would have been done either by local parish constables still or by a night watch. So, for example, if she was she was caught in, during the daytime, she would be taken up by a constable and likelihood taken to a magistrate where she would be examined. The victim of the crime would be largely responsible for the costs and effort to have her eventually prosecuted. From there, um, the likelihood is if it was a first offense or if uh, it was not seen as part of a pattern, she would probably end up in a house of correction for a month, um, which essentially is a, a like a workhouse where you're you're held at hard labor for um, as part of a punishment how onerous this was is 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 open to debate in as much as um, a lot of people say that you know, these were traditional prisons run as contracts on contracts largely run by the prisoners and um nobody seems to have gotten too anxious about them if however She's seen as a repeat offender, as a, um, or there needed to be an example made. It would be the classic disaster of 18th century uh, criminal justice system, which is that it really isn't about justice at all. It certainly isn't about truth. It's about, if you like, the management of populations and expectations. So she's identified as somebody that they really need to um, essentially either punish, punish as an exemplar for a particular group of people. She would um, be committed to Newgate in the first instance or House of Correction prior to Newgate and then tried at the Old Bailey, where even for a sh- uh, the theft, theft of um, as little as 12 pence, you could be hanged. Um, up until 1783, that would have been at Tyburn, uh, modern marble arch. And from that, from 1783 onwards, it would be outside the um, steps of Newgate Prison, just where the Old Bailey is now. The likelihood is, though, that even if she was tried at the Old Bailey and sentenced to hang, that would be commuted, probably to transportation in the first instance. And, of course, the whole story of transportation is tied up with the American Revolution, the crisis of the 1780s, and the um, essentially development of the penal colony in, in Australia from, um, well, they, they sent the first fleet in 1787. It really gets established in 1789. So any time after that, um, she would have probably have been sent to Australia. The one thing one should say about that, though, is that you know we tend to think of Australia as Bondi Beach and um, and um, and casual racism. The 18th century, um, it really was the other side of the world. It was six months, and in 1789, just after the first fleet gets back, they have a, there's a whole whole series of um, people who essentially refused the royal pardon. You know, they'd been they'd been sentenced to hang, but told no, you can go to Australia instead. And they said, no, hang me, please. 
Um, and literally, you know, there are a, a dozen women and, and 17 men who, who basically stand up at the Old Bailey and say, you know, no, please, don't, don't send me there, which gives you a sense of the anxiety associated with that. If you want a, a, a motive bit of, of a tat, um, no more than that. Um, look, look up um, Convict Love Token sometime. Convict Love Token. Is that a novel from the time? No, nope, these were essentially coins pounded flat and then carved with a message. Um, and normally you would do that in Newgate, and before you were transported to Australia, you would give it to your loved one as a memento to keep keep your memory. And we have about 450 of these that um, are tied to, we can tie to individuals who were transported. Oh, wow. You imagine sailing across the world, even at that time, was perilous. Like, how many people would have died en route, or was it all right? In the first, the first fleet, it was it was um, pretty awful, and people died of scurvy, and they they were not very healthy. And the um, second, third fleet, um, similarly. But you know, after that, they actually got it right. Um, if you want the origins of safe, um, safe international sailing, it is probably in the transport fleets to Australia. And that's it for this month's episode. Enormous thanks to Victoria Schwab for taking the time to chat with me, with all the various deadlines on her horizon. As well, thanks to Tim Hitchcock for such an interesting talk about the history of London. You can read more about both of them in the show notes. Next month, I should be talking to Sylvain Nouvelle about Waking Gods, the sequel to the very interesting Sleeping Giants. A giant robot found on Earth! What's it for? Hopefully we'll find out next episode. Remember, the science fiction of the future depends on the science fiction we read today, so read wisely. Thanks for listening.